Last week, we gave you a message that was entitled, The Business of the Church, and we tried to speak to you about the purpose of the church in the world. I think that lately, we've all been forced to see just what the church means to us in our own personal lives. What does the church mean to you? What does the ability to assemble mean? What does the congregation of the saints mean to you and mean to me? I do hope, as we have not been able to gather in public worship, that we have indeed missed the church. Have you missed gathering with the Lord's people on Sunday morning? I sure hope that you have. I think that it would be very uncomfortable, maybe even alarming, if I could say that I don't miss being with God's people on Sunday morning. You are to be my best friends. This is to be the place that I value over all other places on planet Earth. And so the idea of not meeting for some seven weeks in a row, that ought to give us great concern. It ought to trouble us very much. But if there was a word that I could use to describe how we should see the church now that we've not been able to assemble with one another, it would be the word appreciation. I trust that now, after some period of time away from one another, that we could say that more than at other times, we have a great and deep appreciation for the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you appreciate the Church more today after you didn't have the blessing of corporate worship for a month and a half? And I hope and I pray that that would be the word that you would use to describe your understanding of the church, or your sentiment towards the church in your own life, that you appreciate it more now than you did before this all began. As we introduce our thought today, which I've entitled The Blessing of the Church, let me first say that when we speak of the church, at times we refer to the institution itself. And so some passages of Scripture describe the church on an institutional level. That is to say, the church as an institution, an organization. And this is an organization that was founded by the Lord Jesus Christ as he walked in this world. As you begin the book of Mark, this is the beginning of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we read in Matthew chapter 16, upon this rock will I build my church. The Lord Jesus Christ established his church as an organization and an institution in the world. But when we speak of the church, we also have reference to the people who make up each individual church body as lively stones, as, if you will, the brick and steel of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an institution. It is also an assembly. As we think about the institution and we talk about the church from an institutional level, we should understand that the church is as it is to be in Scripture. That is to say, God the Lord Jesus has established his church upon biblical principles. And we talked about that last week. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth, and we are to worship in spirit and in truth. The church is an institution that is to be framed according to what God's word says about it. We do what God has told us to do. We don't do what God has not told us to do, and we certainly do not do that which God has forbidden us to do. The church is an institution built upon principles. Principles. But it is also an assembly. It is also a group of people who meet together. 
Practically speaking, you might say, the highest ecclesiastical body is to be the local church. And the local church is all of you, the lively stones that make up this particular congregation. If you think about the church in that way, you see it as a group of people. And as you see it as a group of people, you realize that it is a group of sinful people. Sinners, people with problems, people who live an everyday life, they go to work every single day and perhaps they're retired and they worked a full career and now their life is to be spending time with the wife of their youth. But the church is made up of people. The church is made up of everyday folks who have successes in their life but also failures in their life. The church is made up of people who have many talents Abilities that God has given them to use in his kingdom, but also people of many failures. Because every single one of us is a flawed individual this side of glory, and we're, we're a group of people with successes and failures. Last week we spoke about the business of the church and her work in the world, and as we framed that thought, we said that everything that we do as the church and everything that we do as individuals is to glorify God. Whether we eat or drink, do all to the glory of the Lord. But when we began to more specifically look at what we are to do as the church, as individuals, we are to fear God and keep His commandments. That is the whole duty of man. We are, number two, to worship in spirit and in truth. As the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to present unto God our worship. I meant to mention it last week that sometimes that word worship in Scripture is translated from a word that has reference to a dog licking its master's hand. I think that gives us great perspective as sinners that we are as, in one sense, a dog licking its master's hand, and in another sense, we're the beloved children of God Almighty. And then lastly, it is the work of the church in the world the business of the church in the world, to go and make disciples. Now, we can't make children of God. We understand that a child is born of their parents. Only the parent can make a child. It's simple biology, and it's simple theology. We are the children of God because we've been born of God. But at the same time, once God has quickened a child from death and sin to life in Christ, we can go and we can make a disciple out of that child. And that is our duty as Christians. Today, as we speak about the blessing of the church and what, is it, what it is to be in our lives, I want to share with you a series of psalms, and I've entitled this part of the message, Perspectives from the Psalms. In other words, how we are to feel about the church as we look into the relationship between the church and God's people from the book of Psalms. Now, you might be thinking, the book of Psalms, well, that's Old Testament, isn't it? That's back in the Old Covenant. That's God speaking and dealing with people in a different way than God did today. But I think as we begin looking at some of these Psalms today, we'll see that they're not only applicable to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, they're appropriate as we consider the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the first one of these that we want to share with you is Psalm 137. Psalm 137 is perhaps you might say a very discouraging psalm, a very negative psalm. And we share this with you today with the perspective in mind that we haven't been able to worship the way that we could worship. This morning as I was crossing in between all of the cars in the parking lot, one of the little girls in the one of the vehicles here leaned out of the car and held her arms out to give me a big hug. And 
It breaks my heart. I have to say six feet away. We're social distancing. I wanted to grab her out of that window and squeeze her and give her a big hug. Why? Because I love her and I love every one of you. And yet for eight to nine weeks, we haven't been able to embrace one another, to shake one another's hand. We haven't, for a period of weeks, been able to meet in our sanctuary. And we love to eat here at Flint River, don't we? Amen. We love to eat. We haven't been able to have lunch with one another. We haven't been able to go into the fellowship hall. Why is it named that? Because it's a place where we enjoy fellowship one with another. And so Psalm 137, I believe, is appropriate for us in our current situation to help frame our perspective of the appreciation that we have or should have for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a negative psalm, and the other ones that we share with you today are positive, but we begin with this perspective because it's so similar to the way, at least in a small sense, to what we've endured. Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept, when we remembered Zion. Now, at the point in Jewish history in which Psalm 137 is written by the rivers of Babylon, that tells you that this is written from the period of Babylonian captivity. Israel, because of their rebelliousness, because of their wickedness, because of their forsaking of God's commands, had been carried away into Babylon. And for 70 years, they served in Babylon as slaves. They had no access to their land. Their temple had been ransacked and destroyed, burned to the ground. Their city, the wall had been destroyed. The houses, the ceilings had fallen in. There were three sieges of Jerusalem. And by the end of the last one, the only people who were remaining there were those who were infirmed, those who were useless to the nation of Babylon in their mind. When we remembered Zion... We wept, we cried, we missed it. Their entire way of life had come to an end. And as they sat there by the river of Babylon, they could do nothing but cry as they remembered their former way of life. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof, for there they that carried us away, captive, required of us a song, and they that wasted us required of us myrrh, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. This is what you might refer to as adding insult to injury. Not only were they carried into captivity, not only were they not blessed with the opportunity to worship their God and hear His word and keep some of the commands, the feasts, the festivals that they had kept throughout their existence. They didn't have their freedom. But those who had carried them into captivity asked them to sing the songs that they used to sing as they worshiped God in their former land. How depressing that must have been. They didn't do that because they liked the songs, I don't believe. I believe they did that to insult them, to enslave them, to afflict them, to torment them. If you think about the songs of Zion, what would those be in that day? Well, they would be the psalms that had been written up until the time of Babylonian captivity. 
Each of these psalms that was written is what the Babylonians would ask them to sing. Think for your for a moment in your mind about what most of these psalms were about. They were about deliverance. They were about God thwarting the enemies of Israel. They were about fear and victory. And as they conquested them, as they brought them into submission, as they captured them, they would afflict them by saying, sing us these songs of victory that you used to sing as we have now brought you into our captivity. Can you see the insult there? How shall we sing the song, the Lord's song, in a strange land? Now, the following language is why I'm here in this chapter. In verse 5, If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. The psalmist here says, Lord... If I forget my home, if I forget Zion, the place of worship, the temple, in our day, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, let me forget the ability to perform my trade. Let the tongue in my mouth cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I don't remember you, if I don't remember the holy city, if I don't remember and if I don't prefer Jerusalem over my chief joy. Psalm 126 is one of my favorite psalms because it's one of such comfort and hope in the middle of an affliction. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, Psalm 126, we were like them that dream. Now, this is believed to have been written in the period after Babylonian captivity as they're allowed to go back into their homeland. And so he says, when the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Now, this is believed to have been written by Ezra. You know that Ezra was a priest that ministered and labored in the period of rebuilding. He was contemporary with Nehemiah and with Malachi. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that did dream. It was as if we were living in a good dream. Now, I know that we've all had those dreams when we wake up and we really wish that we were back in the dream and you try to go to sleep again so you can be back in the dream and it never really works. We were like them that did dream when God turned again the captivity of Zion. I don't think they could realize what they had until they lost it. And then when they spent 70 years without it, by the time they went back, it was so sweet and so precious to them that it felt like they were in a dream. This is, in other words, as we would say it today, this is simply too good to be true. If you're without the church for a period of time and then God blesses you to be a part of it again, is it as if you're living in a dream? So good that it is as if you were not even awake. He goes on to say, Then was our mouth filled with laughter, and our tongue was singing. What a joyful reunion it was when God's house was filled again. When the people came in and around the temple, and they began to worship Him. And by the way, you can also involve negativity and pessimism in that, because there were some people after the rebuilding who said, Well, 
It just doesn't have the glory that it had in its former days. You should have seen it back when. What they should have been saying is, praise God, we have the ability to worship Him again in His holy city. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for them. By the way, I don't know if you realize it or not, but your life is not private. Just to make a parallel to this in our own present day and age, the world around you sees your life, and they can tell if your life is one of God's blessing and providence, and they can tell if your life is a shipwreck. Oh, that God would bless us in such a way that people who don't know anything about the Lord could look at us and say, God has done things in their life. May God do wonderful things in our lives that are obvious to even the heathen of the land. The Lord has done great things for them. How so? Well, specifically, rewinding history a little bit to what they had gone through, this nation had been carried away into Babylonian captivity. As they were in Babylonian captivity, a period of decades, God sent another nation in to overthrow Babylon as... The Medo-Persians overthrow them. Cyrus, king of Persia, issues a decree for them to go back and to rebuild. They began to rebuild. They received strength from this Medo-Persian empire. They rebuilt the wall. They rebuilt their homes. They rebuilt the holy city. God had done wonderful things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Now, some people interpret that as give us more captivity because it's good for us and we've learned not to forsake you and learn not to blaspheme you. But I understand that as saying, Lord, if we be in any captivity, reverse the course of that as the streams in the south. It's said of the southern regions of Judea, that it was a very dry place. And I want you to think about that imagery there. Southern Judea is dry, and there are streams in southern Judea. That's like an oasis in the middle of the desert. Lord, turn our captivity as the streams in the south. Bless us like water in the middle of a desert land. Of course, we find Scripture in the Proverbs about God changing hearts and turning hearts as He does the rivers of water. And then we find this great encouragement in verses 5 and 6. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Now that's a principle that applies obviously to their experience and to some degree our experience, but I want to apply this to every part of your life. You know, this is Mother's Day today and we, we want to thank God for all of the mothers. How many times has a mother been brought to tears when no one was looking because of the things that were facing her family? They that sow in tears shall reap in joy, mothers. Your labors are not in vain. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. I love to compare this to the gospel ministry. So many times in the gospel ministry we sow in tears. We do the very best that we can and we try and we... We pray and we hope and we love each and every one who darkens the doorstep of the churches where we labor. But so many times there are heartaches, there are pains. Think about it this way. Every single problem that every single person in the church faces, the pastor knows about, he prays about, he worries about, 
They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. The sowing of seed is one of the parables that God gave to help us understand the preaching of the word. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. As we sow in tears, we reap in joy. We come again bearing that which we have harvested. Psalm 122 is one that is, I'm sure, been in all of our minds lately. Verse 1, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into... Let us go into the house of the Lord. How I would love to be meeting with you today in our auditorium, but I want you to understand today that we have gone into the house of the Lord even though we are outside. Because the house of the Lord in today's time is not a temple that is made of stone. It is not made of wood. It is not made of brick. The temple of God today is made of people. Let us go into the house of the Lord. I was glad when they said unto me. I hope as you were getting ready for church today, because we have had church. Now, I technically consider that we had church every single weekend that we were not able to meet. Some weekends, there were three people. Myself. My son, who runs the sound and the live stream, and our brother Kenneth, who has left to go to Arizona this past Thursday overnight to be with his mother there. He doesn't have internet, and since he didn't have internet, he came and he sat in the back row and watched the service there. Do you remember that scripture in Matthew 18 that primarily deals with church discipline? What does it say? Where two or three are gathered in my name. Technically, we never missed a Sunday here. I was here, and most of us gathered online. But today we have gone into the house of the Lord. Now, you're outside. You say, how is that possible? Because you are the house. The house has assembled. And I hope as you were getting ready today, you weren't thinking, well, we got to go to church. we got to sit in our car for 40, 50 minutes in a parking lot and Drive there and drive back. I hope you were thinking, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. I hope that we appreciate it after having weeks without it. Our feet shall stand within thy gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is builded as a city that is compact together, whither the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, under the testimony of Israel. Now this is a psalm of David, it's pre-captivity, in fact it's, one of the earlier psalms being written by David himself, to give thanks unto the name of the Lord. That's what we come together to do as we worship, to give thanks unto God. For there are set thrones of judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now we begin to hear some things that we should pray for as the church, and obviously this applied to Jerusalem in David's day, but as this is Mount Zion, the church of the living God, as we'll see in a moment, We should pray for the peace of the church. I think that we've all been in church long enough to see times when the church did not have peace. Now, by the way, one of the things that we opened up with today is with the fact that 
the church is made up of lively stones. These lively stones are people, and these people are what? Glorified saints? No. These people are sinners. Somebody says, I want to go to a church that doesn't have all those sinners. Well, show up here after 10 o'clock at night sometime. I guarantee you it'll be a church house with no sinners. And the second anybody walks in, guess what it's going to be? It's going to be a church full of sinners because the church is made up of sinful people. Now, we have been made righteous through the blood of Jesus. We are completely washed whiter than snow. Legally, legally, we are as righteous as Jesus himself. And yet simultaneously, in a practical sense, we are yet sinful people. I believe the theological phrase for that in Latin is simul justus et peccator. And it simply means we are simultaneously justified and sinful until glorification. We should pray for the peace of the church, Jerusalem, Zion, Israel, because peace glorifies God. And division in a church is a shame. It robs us of our peace. God is not glorified. The saints are not edified. This is to be a place of peace. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. Do you see how peace and prosperity are combined here? To have prosperity in the church, we must have peace. And oh, that we had prosperity in the church. Don't you wish that year by year, Sunday by Sunday, more people were here at Flint River Primitive Baptist Church? Don't you wish our churches would grow and do well in the world? I mentioned it last week because we are to go in to make disciples. It might not be safe for all of us to gather in the lunchroom this week. But we'll walk down to the Flint River. I know a place right over there where a friend of mine was camping out for about two months. I'll find a body of water. I'll go baptize you. Pray for the prosperity of Jerusalem. Would to the good Lord that we had baptisms here every month as long as this church stands till the Lord comes again. Amen. Pray for the peace and prosperity. Peace be within thy walls and prosperity within thy palaces. For my brethren and companions' sakes, I will now say, Peace be within thee. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek thy good. This is the house of God, and so because of that, we should seek the good of the house of God. The last psalm that we want to look at today before looking at a passage from the New Testament is Psalm 102. Psalm 102 is a messianic psalm. And what it means by messianic psalm, what we mean by that is that it is a psalm that at times, or perhaps even in its entirety, has reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. As we Notice the subheading of this psalm. This is a prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed and poureth out his complaint before the Lord. I would just encourage you, if you have a complaint, if you have an affliction, if you have something that's troubling you, to pour it out before the Lord. The imagery there, pouring it out, implies emptying a vessel, and certainly our bodies are earthen vessels. We pour out our complaint to God. 
He begins by saying, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let him that and let my cry come unto thee. Hide not thy face from me in the day when I am in trouble. Incline thine ear unto me in the day when I call. Answer me speedily. For my days are consumed like smoke. My bones burned as a hearth. My heart is smitten and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. By reason of the voice of my groaning, my bones cleave to my skin. Now this is Speaking of the suffering of Christ, it's believed. My days, in verse 11, are like a shadow that declineth, and I am withered like grass. But thou, O Lord, shall endure forever in thy remembrance unto all generations. Now, I love how he begins to shift the focus to the future. Lord, your remembrance will endure unto all generations. Thou shalt arise and have mercy on whom? On Zion. Now, we've mentioned Zion in every single one of these psalms today, and I want that to be in your mind. Why mention Zion? Why would we mention it? And I think as we come to the close of our message today, it will be very evident to you today that as the psalmist speaks of Zion, there might have been, and there certainly was, an initial application to Jerusalem, the city of worship upon the mountain of Zion, but that this also, and now, today, has reference to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Shifting his focus to the future, his remembrance shall endure unto all generations. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion, for the time to favor her, yea, the set time is come. For thy servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. I have competition from a guy on a racing bike. Anyway, that's a first for us here too. A minute ago it was a train. I'm waiting for an airplane or perhaps a nuclear bomb. But When the psalmist writes about our love of Zion and God's favor of her. What does he say about the servants of God? Notice this in verse 14. Thy servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. Is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ so precious to you, so precious to you, that you even favor the dust in the house of God? Now, this obviously takes a very special application to us as we consider loving the stones of the house of God because, again, who are the stones? What are the stones in the house of God? You. I ought to favor you. I ought to love you. You make up the house of God. But these old Israelites, the psalmist here expresses it, they love the house of God so much that they even love the dust that they found accumulated in places in God's house. In his commentary, John Gill wrote that perhaps dust here had reference to the innumerable company of people that make up God's family. And while that is certainly a possibility, it is said of the Jews that they love their city so much, they love Mount Zion so much, when they would enter into the border, the boundary of Zion, 
they would kneel down and they would kiss the ground of their holy city. Do you love the church so much that you could kneel down and kiss the very dirt of her borders? I'm suddenly stricken with the imagery of washing the saints' feet and how at times people would wash Jesus' feet and kiss his feet. I'm sure that if we tried, we could make a connection there. I want to turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 12 for the last point that we make today. And I do so with the thought in mind of expressing the blessing where we have come today. Because we've come into Zion. We have come to the city of our God. A place that we love. A place that we ought to appreciate. A place that I I hope with every fiber in my being that you have missed this place. There are many blessings of being in God's house, and as we just begin to name a few of them, you could name several, and then we'll look at some that God's Word lists for us in Hebrews chapter 12. First of all, one of the great blessings of God's house, and I trust that God is revealing Himself to you today, the presence of God is in Zion. As we come together as a church body, whether we're all in a parking lot in our cars, if we have an outside service where we bring our own chair and we bring our own hymnal and I set up a podium and I talk to you outside. By the way, we might try that on pleasant days so we don't use the building during this COVID-19 pandemic. I think a half dozen times over the 14 years I've been here, somebody said, you know, it's really nice. We ought to meet outside today. If you've ever made that comment, now's your chance. The time has come. We'll have an outside service. What are we doing today? Could you, have, could you ask for the blessing of better weather to be in church outside than we have today? What a beautiful day this is. Whether we're inside or outside, we experience the presence of God. And I believe that we do that as we hear the word and God lifts up our hearts and our souls. He strengthens the feeble knees. He causes us to have Joy when there was mourning, we experience the presence of God as we sing. We experience the presence of God when we pray. Sometimes this presence of God that we experience might feel like contrition because where God is, humility is often there. And where it is not, chastening will surely follow. There's humility in the soul when God is there speaking to you as the spirit and the flesh war together. Sometimes this looks like extreme joy. Sometimes it even looks like shouting when the presence of God is among the people of God. Another blessing of God's house is that of worship. We talked about this as one of the duties of the church last week, the business of the church. We are to meet and we are to worship in spirit and in truth. What a blessing it is to worship Him. One of the blessings of God's house is that in God's house, you not only have the Word, but you have the preaching of the Word. You have the preaching of the gospel. God's ministers stand before His people and they share with them 
messages from God's holy word. You get to hear how God would have you to live your life. You get to learn of how he saved you from your sins. How heaven will be your home. The gospel transforms us. The gospel over and over delivers us. One of the blessings of the church is that of fellowship. And I know that we've missed it so much over the past few months. I look forward to fellowshipping with you more than talking to you through a car window. But I'm so thankful for that. For a period of weeks, the best I got was to look at you through a Zoom meeting. And while I enjoyed that, there's nothing like talking to you face to face. And then, lastly, as we just begin thinking of some of our reasons, we have in the Church of the Lord Jesus accountability. We hold one another accountable to honor Christ. And there are so many other blessings. We can pray for one another. We can love one another. We can help one another as a family and a body. Yet let's look to Hebrews chapter 12 for a biblical list of exactly what blessing we have come to today. Hebrews chapter 12 begins to contrast the Old Testament with the New. And you'll see this is a common thing in the book of Hebrews. It's a book that's written to give us the superiority of Christ and to exhort first century Hebrews not to fall back into their old way of worship and to forsake the New Testament and to forsake Christ, but that they should pursue Him and love Him and serve Him in the New Testament in the church, a church that is superior in every way to that of the Old Testament. And he, in Hebrews chapter 12, says, For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched. And that word there, that phrase, might be touched, means that you were forbidden to touch. In the Old Testament, when God gave the law upon Mount Sinai, they were forbidden from touching the mount. There were boundaries placed around it. And if a person or an animal touched the mount, they had to be struck through with a dart or stoned, put to death. Why? Because that mountain would be a place where God would reveal His holiness through the giving of the law. And they were simply unworthy to touch it. Moses, in the presence of God, comes down from the mount, and his face was glowing so that the people were so terrified, terrified that they said, put a veil over your face, we can't look upon you, it's terrifying. You're not coming to that mount that was burned with fire unto blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more, For they could not endure that which was commanded, and if so much as a beast touched the mount, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses, Moses himself, said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But ye are come unto Mount Zion." Now, this suddenly reframes every passage of Scripture in the Psalms that talks about the blessing of Mount Zion, does it not? You have come unto Mount Zion. Now, sure, there was a mount with Jerusalem, with the temple, but those Psalms have a greater application to something that God was going to do far greater than and better than all that He did in the Old Testament. 
Jesus would come into the world, he would establish his church, he would save his people from their sins, and this is the new Mount Zion. Ye are come to Mount Zion. Now, what have you come unto today? Now, first of all, you've come unto the city of the living God. You're in a city this morning. The heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable company of angels. Now, that's interesting to think about. Angels revealed themselves in multitudes a few times in Scripture. At the birth of Jesus, certainly there were angels there. And I think at the crucifixion, there were legions of angels with sword in hand, standing by merely waiting on the word. But we know that Jesus came to do the Father's will. What does he mean here to an innumerable company of angels? Perhaps that's a mystery in part. But notice verse 23. You are come to the general assembly and church of the firstborn which are written in heaven. The general assembly. Today we have an assembly of saints. A general assembly of saints. The church of the firstborn. The only begotten son of God. The eternal Son of God. You are come to His church. Now, as we begin to think about that today, to help us put this in the proper focus, there's one of the lyrics, one of the verses in one of my favorite hymns says, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. We're not here today for the sake of us. We're not here today for the sake of being better than anyone else. We're not here today to say, look at us, we've got it figured out, we've got it all right. Because there are all kinds of things in our own personal lives and in our hearts as we come together that we don't have figured out and we don't have all right. And I certainly don't have everything in this word figured out and I certainly don't apply every passage of Scripture the way it ought to be applied. This is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that we do together as a church is to be to His honor to be to His glory, for His sake, we have met together today to worship. We exist as an organization to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. This is His church. One of the funniest things that have happened to me as a dad pastor, as a dad pastor, years ago, the uh, now teenager and nearly teenager dastardly duo Lydia and Elijah they're they're always paired together they're kind of a team we were having a conversation as a family and and one of them made the comment about me owning the church and I guess it's because I spend so much time up here and get up and talk to you on Sunday and I said honey I just serve the church I don't own this church I don't own this property and even if for some reason, I'd launched a church, and for a brief period of time, the land was actually in my name. If it met in my house, I do not own the church, and neither do we. Neither do any of us. We are merely stewards of the gospel of Christ. Jesus owns Jesus' church. We answer to him. He owns it. He commands it. He saved it. He built it. And everything that we do together... Is for Jesus Christ, for His glory. 
His name, His majesty, His honor were people who love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the General Assembly and Church of the Firstborn. Listen to this next part, which are written in heaven. Your names, beloved, are written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. Your names are written in heaven. But beyond that, we've come to God, the judge of all. Did you come today to meet with God? Did you come today to feel his presence? I yearn to sing again with you as a congregation. Don't you look forward to that day? Lord willing, that might be next Sunday. We've come to God in our hearts, in our minds, in our midst, in our presence. And would to the good Lord that he would manifest himself unto you this day, that you would feel him. God, the judge of all. Look at this one. To the spirits of just men made perfect. You say, I'm not perfect. No, but through the blood of Jesus you are. And there's one day that you will be completely. To the spirits of just men made perfect by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. You have come to Jesus, and I trust that as you sang along with the hymns that we played, it's the best we can do, I trust and I hope that you felt him in your heart as you see one another, as you love one another here today, as you pray for them and with them, and as you hear his word, I pray, I pray that you have come to Jesus because Jesus is in Mount Zion. And when we come to church and when we sing praises unto him, we come to him. And I believe we find rest unto our souls. Lastly, verse 28 Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Let us serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Don't you love the way that the writer of Hebrews ends all of that beautiful, powerful language with a simple exhortation? If you realize where you've come, if you realize where you are, number one, I pray that it's a blessing for you. I pray that God has filled you with His Spirit today as we've worshipped Him. And I pray that we would be moved to serve Him in an acceptable way, with fear, for our God is what? Our God is a consuming fire.